we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. This is She's On Call, a weekly show hosted by ENT specialist Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar and general surgeon Dr. Marina Kurian. They'll be joined by guest experts to discuss an array of newsworthy medical and health issues. You're invited to ask the doctors anything. The physicians and their guests' views are their own and do not represent any institution. Please contact your doctor for any personal questions. Please hit share and join us live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at She's On Call. Hashtag She's On Call. Please welcome our hosts. Hello, I'm Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon practicing in New York City and New Jersey, and we are just finishing Kids ENT Health Month. All right. I, you always try to sneak something in there. I do. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, I'm Marina Kurian. I'm a general surgeon and I do minimally invasive surgery, weight loss surgery in New York City. And we're so excited to bring this show about children's emotional and physical well-being. And we have some great guests that we'd love to introduce to you. So we have uh, viewers of our show will know we had the prior president of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the prior executive director of the School Nurses Association. Today, we have the current president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Lee Beers. Uh, she is associate professor of pediatrics and the medical director for community health and advocacy at Children's National Hospital in Washington, DC. And also Robin Kogan is joining us. She's a nationally certified school nurse with a master's degree in education. And she's in her 20th year in the Camden, New Jersey School District. And she's also a legislative co-chair for the New Jersey State School Nurses Association. And, you know, this is a, a timely show because, you know, as in, in New York City, we have our middle schoolers went back this past week. And, um, you know, I think the whole nation's getting geared up now that these vaccines are out, that we're going to try and get kids back into school, which obviously is going to make a huge difference. But first... As you guys watch us know, Suju and I are going to talk a little bit about the news. Yes. And unfortunately, in the United States, uh, we passed a really grim milestone this week. Over 500,000 deaths from COVID-19 on Monday. President Biden marked it with solemnity and reminded us that each person has left a family hurting. Um, I wanted to show you this picture of the cover shot of ABC News as they covered this story. Um, the child in the picture is actually my very dear friend, Officer Charles Roberts's son. Uh, Rob um, died on May 11th after COVID and his son Gavin is wearing his police hat at his funeral. Um, you know, like with so many families and family, we can define so many ways. 
Uh, our extended family in my town has been left with a big hole in our heart uh, with Rob's passing. You know, there was some um, look at, at at these stats, and they said that um, every death leaves at least at least nine people grieving, and that's that's a big deal, and that's why. You know, the original predictions, remember the models that we were talking about back in March, was that if we did nothing, the U.S. might reach 2.4 million deaths. And that was a, a basically a modeling uh, of uh, or predictive modeling. And it didn't actually come to fruition, thank goodness. But I do believe that everything that we try to do to reduce um, transmission of the virus, including the lockdowns and the masks, definitely helped minimize, but still 500,000 is, is so much. And, and we're still losing, like in New York state. So, you know, the governor emails me. Yes. Along with everybody else in New York state, but you know, still he emails me and we're down, uh, we're down significantly. We were up over a thousand a day for a while in deaths in New York state. Uh, and, and across the country too, you know, we're, we're decreasing, which is very, very good. Very important. So we have people watching from all over. Tim Sohn just checked in from Eastern Pennsylvania and Sudha Parekh just checked in from Hastings on Hudson, which is my favorite town's name to say, actually, because it's so awesome. It's like Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, we want to remind you that we are live on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and on Sri Srinivasan's LinkedIn. And on Monday, we're carried from 2 to 3 p.m. on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. Um, so the cases are less, but um, it looks like within with the new more contagious variant, particularly B.1.1.7, which was first identified in England, it looks like the cases are going up again. If you look at this graph from the Financial Times, you'll see this sort of sharp peak a couple uh, a couple of months ago and then all the way down. But then at the very end, there's a little curly cue up and that's across the world. And you can see on the right that the old variants are going down, but the new variant, which is in red, is uh, sharply going up. So even if you're vaccinated, please remain vigilant. Please wear a mask. Please keep your distance. Please try not to be in crowded indoor surroundings. And I, and I think that's important when we talk about virus, right, that there are times where the virus mutates and it can result in increased transmission, as we see with the UK variant. But also, um, New York City has a variant that they've been identifying, and it also seems to be pretty common right now. The good news about all of these variants is that the vaccines that are out there seem to address some of that uh, problem with, with the transmission, right? That they're, they are still being effective at preventing transmission of the virus. So that is important. And we have a new vaccine in the U.S. to add. That's right. So we've already vaccinated nearly 70 million people. Uh, and the two vaccines we had since December are the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna, which are both messenger RNA virus, messenger RNA vaccines that require two shots each, three weeks or four weeks apart, depending on the brand. Now, as of yesterday, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a viral vector vaccine, and we're gonna explain what that means in a second, this only needs one shot. It's really effective overall and super effective for severe or hospitalizable or deadly disease. Um, it needs normal refrigeration, so not that super deep freeze 
uh, that the other two shots need. And it has really done very well in trials, both in the United States and in South Africa, where you know there is another uh, very contagious variant. So the difference is that it's a viral vector, which means it takes a regular cold virus, an adenovirus bit to transmit little uh, bits of genetic code that also code for that spike protein, that thing that sticks out, our famous uh, golf ball coronavirus with the spike proteins. So it codes for the spike protein so that your body makes antibodies that will fight that spike protein if it enters the body. So it doesn't change your genetic structure. It does not give you a bit of COVID uh, virus because it doesn't use COVID virus. So all roads lead to making the spike proteins and making the antibodies against them. So far, you know, we have uh, two vaccines that were approved. So about 68 million people are, are, have been vaccinated. 6% of the population are fully vaccinated, meaning that with the, the prior two vaccines were two shots. So they've received both shots. So I think this is going to be a game changer. Uh, Johnson & Johnson has promised to send 100 million doses, which equals... 100 million people that can get vaccinated, and I believe they said by June. So that is really fantastic. But it's still hard, uh, even though, you know, all the different tiers of who gets a vaccine, it's still quite hard to get the vaccine or get an appointment to get the vaccine. And it's created a lot of um, interesting either algorithms to try and get into line for the vaccine, or people have created little uh, communities, I guess, or people that will actually help you try to get the vaccine, which I think is so nice to help a stranger, right, to get a vaccine dose. Yeah, it's so nice. There's a story out of Chicago, a 14-year-old boy helped his grandparents, I think they were in Florida, get the vaccine and then realized there were people in his community who couldn't you know, do the incessant going online to get the vaccine. So a bunch of high, he sort of recruited this group of high school kids to help people get their vaccine. And I've, and I've seen that in many communities in many ways. Um, the other thing is we talk about how African-Americans are hesitant to get the vaccine. And I'll tell you, um, the coronavirus has reduced the life expectancy for all Americans by a year and has reduced the life expectancy of African-Americans by 2.7 years. This is a real issue. We first thought, oh, everyone's hesitant because they don't trust the system or because of Tuskegee or the other things we've talked about on the show. But it turns out that it is possible to provide vaccines that African-American people will get um, when they're provided in a way they can receive them uh, and by healthcare providers they trust. So there's this tweet that went out that talked about this um, group in Philadelphia called Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium. And this was during like the snowstorm, the sleet storm, and you can see this sort of frenetic video of people lined up for a, a first come first serve vaccines by people they trust. So, you know, I think we can get there, Marina, and I think we can get there with science and with empathy. And let's meet our guests. Exactly. So we're so excited to welcome Dr. Lee Beers. She is the current president of the American Academy of Pediatrics and also Robin Cogan, who is a school nurse and she is the co-chair of the Legislative Committee for the New Jersey um, School Nurse Association. Both have great platforms uh, and we're so excited to talk to them 
about our children's emotional, physical, and educational health. Welcome. Thank you so much. Excited yes. to be here. Yes, thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. It's great to be here today. Well, we're so happy to have you. We have people checking in. Neerja Kikari checked in from uh, Dallas, Texas. Leela Rangachar checked in from Harlem. Um, we have people who watch us from all over the world. And um, I am so grateful to you because this is such a timely topic. We're coming upon the one year anniversary as things started shutting down in the United States. Um, let's talk a bit about vaccines. Dr. Beers, Lee. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has been very vocal about the fact that the vaccines that have been approved are approved at age 16 or 18 or up. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for bringing this issue to us because I, I think it's something that we don't think about a lot, right? Um, you know, the, we know that the, the virus uh, tends to affect adults more severely than children. And so, so I think to some extent, um, we may think less about the vaccine in children, but there's a couple of really important points. First is that while children are less impacted by the infectious diseases of COVID, many of them can still be get very severe, severe illness. Uh, and I think the second piece is that while children may be less impacted by the infectious complications of COVID, they're quite impacted by all the other implications of the pandemic, the social isolation, the lack of access to in-person school, the disruptions in their routine. Um, and so, so making sure that children have a safe and effective vaccine as soon as possible is incredibly important um, for the health and well-being of our children and for the health and well-being of our communities. Children are about 20% of our population. And so to achieve herd immunity, it also is going be important for kids to be vaccinated. Um, and, and what we've seen is that, uh, you know, we, we absolutely advocate and recommend that we follow the, the well-established safety protocols, but we need to approach it with the same urgency that we have with the adult trials. And we've seen um, as well that the kids, because they, because of the quarantine, because of the fear of going to a doctor's office or to the, or to a clinic, that they've actually fallen off their normal vaccine schedule. We have a slide that we'd like to show about who should get vaccinated when, but we'd love for you to discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for that opportunity because this is so important. You know, we've seen over the past year actually almost a 20% drop in the measles immunization rate. And so that tells us a couple of things. One is that, you know, we may be losing immunity for other really important infectious illnesses in kids during this time. But the other important piece is that if kids are coming into their pediatrician to get their shots, it means they're also losing out on the opportunity to connect with their pediatrician about all the other things that are so important for their health and well-being and mental health. Um, and, and that's what your pediatrician is there for. You know, we're here to really um, to, to walk hand in hand with you and your whole family through this really difficult time. And so, um, you know, absolutely, we encourage, uh, you know, if, you, if you've if you got kids at home and you haven't been in for your well check recently, give your doctor a call so you can get that scheduled because we, we want to see you and we can do it safely and uh, uh, effectively. So Robin, you know, you see on this, uh, this um, graphic, the, the incredible drop off right as the closures happened in March and April. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. 
Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. Of last year, where do school nurses, where do schools fall um, in the vaccine um, spectrum? Such a great question. And first, thank you so much for having me and for really amplifying the voice of school nursing in this important time. And I want to specifically thank Dr. Beers because the AAP has partnered with the National Association of School Nurses. And as, as a, a unit, because we really do work hand in hand, um, the academy has um, been very vocal about the need to have a school nurse in every building. That has changed from a, a, a ratio that was really not tenable quite a few years ago to having a school nurse in every building. And I'm going to answer your question, but I want you to understand that up to 60% of students across this country, and there are almost 57 million of them, either have no school nurse in their building or only a part-time school nurse. And vaccine compliance and vaccine surveillance is one of our big roles in a non-COVID world. So a lot of the, the time that we have spent since we have been remote is really encouraging our families to make sure our students are vaccinated. It's a big part of the role that I have in my New Jersey um, uh, school district, where in New Jersey, actually, the flu shot is mandatory for all children ages six months to five years old. And so we, we work very hard and diligently to make sure our, our families do attend those appointments. I think one of the confusing parts beyond everything else with COVID is that parents and we're having a difficult time really understanding, uh, you know, remote uh, well visits like tele telehealth. It took uh, quite a learning curve for them to trust it um, and, and understand the process of telehealth. And so we were able to to help uh, ease that and and be kind of the intermediary so that. Uh, those appointments, those very important appointments were made. Of course, there still is definitely a drop off and we are playing catch up because offices are open. And that message by credible messengers has to get out there. Your, your pediatrician's offices are open and, and appointments are readily available. Robin, can we discuss, um, and I think you wrote about this, you have a blog, the Relentless, Relentless school nurse blog and i think a great title by the way right you. But you did discuss uh there as well what should be the vaccination schedule for teachers and obviously for school nurses so how how is that being approached in new jersey and in what would you say how is it going across the country yeah so like everything else with the with covid uh, the rollout um from the last administration has really put us at a disadvantage and so I think we're playing catch up for everything. In terms of vaccinating our, our school staff, which is very, very important for the school staff to feel a sense of safety. I mean, underneath all of this, people need to feel safe to be able to return to work, to school, to life. And so in New Jersey, we were able to elevate uh, school staff to a 1B or 2A on the list of who can get vaccinated, but that's not true across the country. There, it's really, it, there hasn't been a clear rollout. Uh, things are changing all the time. And I'm certainly praying that with the J&J &J vaccine, the one dose, I, I'm hoping it'll be the game changer. Right now we have school staff that are scheduled to get their vaccine, but they're not even scheduled until June. Mm -hmm. And so, we want to be back in school face-to-face -face full time. I know that having being fully vaccinated 
the CDC said is not a requirement. It certainly would impact though, how people feel in terms of their own health and safety. Right, I think that's so important, right? They're talking about it like, you know, the person who's most at risk, it's it, teachers are definitely frontline as are school nurses. I mean, it, this is just an essential part of our communities and you guys deserve to get the vaccine as well. Um, obviously the risks are a little bit different from people who are working in the hospitals, but it's still so important to get it. And I think the 100, mil, 100 million doses that we're gonna get from JJ that. I, I'll say it is hard to get the vaccine. I bought the fridge for minus 20, okay? Because I figured I'm not buying a minus 70 fridge. They're huge. And where would I put it in my office? But I wanted to get it for my patients because, you know, I treat a lot of obese patients. And so they are, excuse me, patients with obesity and they, they are at high risk. And so I wanted to be able to offer it. And in New York State, because of the way the doses have been coming in, they told me that I won't even get it until June as well for, for my patients. But Dr. Beers, do you have some comment on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I, I agree. I'm so um, enthusiastic, actually, that the J&J vaccine is out. I, I agree. I think that's really going to increase our availability and, and, and allow us to really get the vaccine out to all of our frontline workers, including, you know, teachers and school nurses. We, we were talking, um, actually, before we went live about a great partnership here. I, I uh, live in D.C. and actually have kids in the public school system here. And uh, great partnership between our Children's Hospital, Children's National, and the, the health department and the school system, um, where we came together and ran a big immunization event, um, vaccinated over 3,000 teachers um, over the course, you know, both doses over the course of a month. And it was just an amazing partnership. There were lots of school nurses there, lots of school nurses involved. And it was really just such an amazing partnership where all of us who really care about kids and really care about um, uh, their health and well-being, we're just coming together to to really start moving things forward. So I, I do think, you know, there's there's so much hope on the horizon and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. You know, we have um, a question that came in that leads really well into the next segment that I wanted to talk about. So Tammy Fry Kinley says she's worried about the mental weight of isolation with online learning for adolescents and teenagers, right? So we talk a lot about the small kids, but have, owning an adolescent and a teenager and older, I will tell you that they uh, experience a lot of this and, and with college applications, with grades, with not being able to get the kind of um, social relationships uh, with their friends and with their teachers at school, and then not being able to get the vaccine. So we know that by mid-March last year, most American schools had shut their doors, about half remain fully or partially closed, and about 80% of children worldwide have experienced school closures during the pandemic. We have a bar graph that shows about 1.3 billion children affected by this, and UNICEF put out a warning uh, in the fall that this might be a possible lost generation. So th this is the graph that shows 1. almost 4 billion uh, kids overall have uh, have had their education impacted. Um, children in the U.S. have lost between a third and a half year of schooling. So, Lee, what what has what is this, and and what, how do we recover from this? Yeah, 
No, I, I think it's an incredibly important question and, and, and really emphasizes why it's so important for us as a nation and our communities to prioritize the things we need to do to get kids safely back into, into in-person school, because this, this is very hard on our adolescents. And when you think about um, adolescent brain development and the stage that they're in and how important relationships are and, and how important it is for them to be able to um, kind of negotiate through all those things and all those milestones. You, you really do, um, it, it's really sobering what an impact it can have. And, you know, we're also hearing, um, I mean, in practices, pediatric practices across the country, you know, hearing about lots of teens who are really disengaging from school and, and dropping out um, sometimes because of mental health issues, sometimes, um, sometimes because of family economic issues, they have to work to help support their family. And sometimes they're, they're disengaging from their own education so they can help their younger siblings um, with their education while their parents are, are, are working outside of the house as essential workers. And so there's so many layers um, of, of, of challenge here. But I think, you know, the, the way we get pat the, the way we catch up from this is to really acknowledge it and focus on it and start um, you know really reaching out to these teens really reaching out to these families really thinking about how how do we not just get back to where we were before but how do we actually reimagine our our health and educational system so that we're better meeting the needs of all of our kids and I think I'm sure Robin has a lot to say about this because school nurses are a huge part of that and they're such important partners in that intersection between between health and education. And that's a great segue. Um, Robin, I wanted to ask you about the kids and their well-being. It's not just the education. It's so much socialization. It's emotional. You could. We have a great graphic about this, about the kids' uh, well-being. You could just comment on that for us. Yeah, I, I, I look at these graphics and I, I see kids' faces. I see teachers. I see the struggle. I hear it every day. You know, we, I, I want to say that the buildings did close in March. They did, they closed in mid-March, but learning in, in this new uncharted territory has continued, not in the way that any of us would have ever imagined or wanted, but learning and relationships have continued. They look very different. Certainly this has impacted students in all grade levels. It has impacted teachers. It has impacted all school staff, families, communities, I mean, I think we need to say that we are living through a collective trauma as a nation on multiple levels. You know, we have the trauma of the epidemic of, 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 the, of this awful virus, the epidemic of racism. The, I mean, we have multiple epidemics happening at the same time. I could bring gun violence into this conversation. I mean, our children are managing through the most unprecedented times. And for schools who have tried so hard to, to meet the needs of everyone. I don't, I have to say, I don't know if, if they've been given enough credit for the effort. There's been unfortunately some finger pointing when really we are on the same team. We do want the same things. We really need to talk about our commonality. You know, when you hear about schools like Chicago that were um, putting up, you know, concerns and rightfully so about returning safely, Underneath that is true, are people feeling unsafe? In my own school district, we are still remote. Our school district continues though to provide meals to students and families. We continue to follow children who are not logging on. We have been able to provide through the generosity of, of people, tablets and um, hotspots so that children can connect. It's, it's not ideal. 
but understand that schools are still working. Uh, but what we need is funding. What we need is to be able to have our buildings safe and ventilation proper. Uh, we need PPE. You know, we need proper staffing. And in my district, more than 50% of my parents want their children to stay home and continue remote learning. And that's one of the issues. What, are, what do our parents want? Parents want, you know, different things across the country. Everyone wants their kids to be safe, though. And so, you know, these are the mental health issue of both the staff and the kids has to come uh, as a front and center before any learning can continue, can begin, right? And Robin, we want to talk also about that. Um, there are a number of kids, as you said, that are not documented. And you just said that in your district, you're trying to go and find out where are these kids that are not oh. right now. But there is an unprecedented number. Um, and that last slide that you guys just saw talked about how one of the teachers or one of the, the uh, principals is going around to try and check on the kids and find out what's happening. And that's happening all over the country, face to face, finding kids. So, you know, some families picked up and, and left and moved to other parts of the country or, or left the country. So finding where families have gone has been a, a very urgent issue. Um, but yes, the, the roles have definitely decreased and, and we hope to get our kids back. I mean, it, it, it's really unimaginable the, uh, the, the barriers that everybody has faced because of COVID. You know, so we have um, a group of children, 12 million, who are considered marginalized in the United States. And these are children who are in foster care or homeless, who have disabilities, who are non-native English speakers, who are migrants. And it is estimated we've lost at, at least 25% of them to education in this past year. That's 3 million children. Um, so we have children with uh, resources and we have children without resources um, who are being affected by this pandemic uh, to various degrees. Alice Roberts, who is um, a very dear friend of mine, um, we showed a picture of her son at the beginning of this show. Uh, he lost his father, um, the children lost their father uh, in May. Um, and and she's, she's a teacher, she's in fact one of the greatest teachers I've ever met. Um, what should schools do to help children's social and emotional well-being? What can they do to help children who are grieving, who have in fact experienced this first degree loss? And maybe Lee, I know you're a pediatrician with a great deal of interest in the mental health and well-being of children. Yeah, no, thank you. I'd, I'd love, I, I love, this is such an important question. I'd, I'd love to talk about this. And, and also just really um, re-emphasizing some of Robin's points is that we are asking so much of our teachers and schools on top of um, generations really of underinvesting in schools and school staff. And so this is, this is the time for us in our nation to really step up and give schools the resources that they need and deserve um, um, to, to do all the things that we all want to do together. It's, it's we, we can't be we did it again Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by root metrics for the 16th time in a row proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks that's why we're building 5g right that's why there's only one best network Verizon 
Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined. Not specific to 5G networks. Own the road with T-Mobile, the leader in 5G. Whether you're cruising through Nashville on I-40, heading down I-90 to Boston, or touring Santa Cruz in the 5, you'll be covered by the largest 5G network. T-Mobile covers the most interstate highway miles in America with 5G. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Most reliable according to independent third-party Umlaut from crowdsourced user experience data from January to July 2021. Fastest according to Open Signal Awards based on average speeds in USA. 5G user experience report July 2021. Asking schools to, to do things without the proper resources. And I think that gets then to some of the answer. Part of the answer to this question is really making sure that we have the resources for enough mental health support in schools. Um, as kids start coming back to in-person school or we or or we make those connections that 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 everyone's working so hard to make, we're going to start learning more and more things. And we're really going to need more of those mental health supports. And, and one of my areas of real interest is what's called integrated, integrated mental health care, where you where you're able to survive provide mental health care and mental health supports in places where kids um, just routinely uh, uh, live, learn, and play. And schools are a really important place for that to happen. So I think that's one um, really important thing. The other thing is just for all of us to ask. We we do this in our primary care clinics here in D.C. I know lots of schools do this as well. Um, but, but just asking. Lots of kids and families are a little embarrassed to say they're struggling. Um, oh, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this in a second. But lots of kids are, are really um, and families, you know, they may not reach out to tell you that they're struggling. And so we have to ask. We have to ask how they're doing. We have to ask if they had losses in their family. We have to ask um, how they're feeling and how their families are doing. This is this is a program we have here in D.C. that, that I started with some of my colleagues here in the city um, where we work together with child psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and collaborate with pediatricians and primary care providers across D.C. so that when we see kids in our offices um, with mental or behavioral health concerns, Concerns, or, or we do a mental health screening and it, it brings up concerns um, that we have someone who we can call and immediately get consultation and talk things through and sort of help us work together to provide collaborative care to do what's best for that child and family. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing until you need something more than reading, writing, and arithmetic from the schools. You don't realize what the schools, the teachers, the school nurses, the teachers' aides, even the janitors are doing to help your children. I remember years and years ago, if you'll remember, there was a baseball player named Corey Lytle, and he was flying a little plane, and it crashed into a building in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which was about a block and a half from my office. And my son was in sixth grade and, um, you know, he only knew about it because he was an avid baseball fan and he just um, couldn't deal with it one day in school. He was so afraid because he knew the geography of my office. He knew where that plane had crashed and it was the teacher and the school nurse who just took him aside and talked and in fact related it back to their experiences after 9-11 and just helped him have a safe place to talk. And I think we can't discount the importance of the people to whom we trust our children eight to 10 hours a day and what they are providing to help them get through, you know, very, very difficult times. I'm, I'm so glad. Oh, I'm so sorry. I was going to say that none of us would be here without our teachers, right? And and 
uh, underpaid, overworked, but there's no question that your teachers in your life are the ones that helped you feel the confidence to pursue your goals. I mean, I get some of that from my folks and, and, you know, whatever you get from the family, but a lot of it is that you can do this. You should, you should, I remember my, my social studies teacher told me I should apply to a six year med program. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was like, really? I mean, I was thinking medicine at some point, but he was like, no, you apply to this. And I was like, okay, you know, and it just, it's that it level of interest and just quickly a shout out to the school nurses, you know, mm-hmm. I, as a doctor, my kids are like complaining about, oh, I hurt my finger, this, that. Seriously, the school nurse was like, uh, I think that's a real thing you have to address or whatever. I was like, she sprained it. I'm like, maybe she needs an x-ray. So Mia culpa to my kids. Like, thank God for the school nurses. That's so funny. But I did want to say uh, I, I appreciate this conversation because just for context, prior to COVID, School nurses were spending up to 35% of our time on mental health issues prior to COVID. It, it is much more now, and we, we need the resources. We need the staffing. I mean, when you have one school nurse with 3,000 kids and four buildings, how are we going to be able to provide care for those students? And on top of that, do a contact tracing work with uh, families that are quarantining and isolating, doing all the care coordination. I mean, COVID has added a, 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 another full-time job on top of a full-time job. And the mental health issues that staff also bring to school. I mean, we are not machines, right? We are whole people. And and COVID has impacted everybody. And, and your friend, I'm so sorry for the loss of your dear friend, and, and, the, and the family to, to deal with that grief. 500,000 families across this country are dealing with loss from COVID and those children will be in school. Um, and, and, I, and just one more quick story. I had a mom send me a private message on Twitter and this was a message. She said, Robin, I only have one child left. What should I do about school? This mom was from Sandy Hook. She had two children in that building that day. Her son survived, her daughter did not. Her son is now 16 and she had to make the decision whether or not to send him back to school. So this issue of school safety goes beyond the virus. It goes to families' health experience and and personal experience. And and I, I just feel like these conversations need to happen more. What are our families really dealing with? What are our teachers and our school staff really dealing right. with? Right, and what are we doing to prepare a curriculum that addresses this, right? You can't just have, Tammy says, what's going on? Like, is there something prescribed to help? Not every teacher is like the greatest teacher in the world. I hope most of them are, but just not like, like every doctor is not the greatest and every nurse is not the greatest, but if they have the tools to help the kids, I want people to see the picture behind you, Robin, because I think this shows what you are. Can you describe that for us? Yes, I'll tell the whole story because I, I have no shame in my birthday. I turned- Oh, and your mom says hello from Soho. <laughs> I turned 60 during COVID and my husband, who's He's just amazing. He supports my work in in very interesting ways. So he had a good friend of ours paint that for me. So when I go back to my office, that is coming. Um, It's it's a school nurse during COVID with a mask standing in front of my school, one of my schools. And there is a sign that says uh, gun-free zone. 
also. We want to talk about what's happening, right? So the middle schoolers in New York City went back to school. Uh, We have some slides on things that can be done to try and facilitate kids going back to school. I think mask wearing is still going to be necessary. But we also have a slide on on HEPA or HIPAA, HEPA, HEPA filtration. That's <laughs> just a funny word. Um, and, and using things like that instead of just plexiglass because right. it doesn't make quite the sense that it should, right? Right. I think um, one of our prior guests, Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding, um, had a really great uh Twitter thread on this and Corsi uh, uh, HEPA filter. So maybe uh, Dr. Beers, maybe Lee, you can talk to us a little bit about why it's important to crack the window and have a filter and what can we do to make schools safe for our children and our teachers? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's this, this really highlights such an important point about school safety, which is it's really about layering a number of different precautions so that, that, you know, each, each level of safety that you layer and add on makes the school a safer place for students and the staff, which is, which is incredibly important. And so um, uh, that, as you mentioned, includes masking, making sure that, that everyone is consistently wearing masking, physical distancing, the cleaning, the ventilation. You know, this is an area where it's so complicated, right? And, and the more I learn about this, the more I realize it really requires such a tight partnership between the schools and the health department and the others to make sure, you know, even within one district, different schools can be set up differently and have different ventilation systems and different abilities to open the windows and all sorts of things. And so really close partnerships between the school and the public health department to make sure that you're maximizing your ventilation in a way that makes it safe and in as, as a part of this overall layering strategy, I think is really critical. So you can see the CDC talked about how um, school districts in Wisconsin were able to implement, as you said, these multiple layers of protection so that children could go back to school. Can I just point out that was a rural school in Wisconsin and there are different challenges in urban in urban school districts like the one where I am. Um, and, and I, I love the visual of, of the layering. There's a great visual with Swiss cheese. Have you seen that Swiss yeah. cheese visual? And every, every slice is a different uh, layer of, of mitigation, uh, ending with vaccine when it's available. And, um, and so we talk about that a lot in school, that you know, it, it's such a great visual because you can see the, you know, the virus trying to get through the different layers. And it's true. When you put all of those layers together, uh, there is much greater chance of keeping everyone safe. But we need everybody's cooperation. And most importantly, we need that to continue when the last school bell rings and kids leave the building. We are not bubble wrapped at school. Very much what happens at school is is impacted by what's happening in the community. And so when they say there's not a lot of spread within school, that's true, but there's a lot of spread in the community because people aren't necessarily following the same strategies. I think one thing, Robin, that I think we talked about um, before we got on air was that it's not feasible to open windows and doors everywhere, right? So that your comment about it being rural Wisconsin um, is, is important because in our cities, like you, you know, you can't, I can't walk into my kid's school. I could be buzzed in. The door's not open, uh, you know, and um, 
and depending on if you're one layer school, one level school versus, you know, multiple uh, floors, you're not going to necessarily be able to open your windows just for safety reasons, because we're trying to keep the kids safe in school as well. And then when they talk about having as many classes outdoors as possible, which is very true, not all schools have a safe space right outside of their school where they can hold, you know, classes outside. I mean, I one of my preschools has no playground outside at all. They have a play yard in the in the attic of their building. So we have to be realistic about who who are who we're talking to. You know, I, I saw this. I heard a great. Um, uh, discussion about COVID and that, you know, somebody said, well, we're all in the in the same boat here with COVID, but we're really not. We're all in the same storm, but some communities are riding out the storm in a yacht and some communities are like hanging by a buoy in the ocean, you know, flopping up and down because, because we don't have equity, right? Right. And I think it's interesting, Audit Nathan uh, just wrote in that in Southern California, where it is warm, even people in a yacht or people in a leaky rowboat, their possibility of outdoor school um, is uh, something that really could have, should have been uh, taken up. And I think, you know, um, we didn't know. There's a really nice article in the, in the Atlantic today about the nuance of us learning on the fly as we're trying, all of us, to come to grips with this pandemic and learn and do and do the right thing all the time. And we just, there's so much we didn't know at the beginning um, and there's so much misinformation and sort of headline grabbers that were given when it's kind of boring to fight a pandemic. It's boring to wear a mask. It's boring not to go to the movies. It's boring not to have a party. Um, but the one thing that uh, we are doing it's as- my boring, But it's safe. It's safe, it's safe. And we have people, I just wanted to point out, we have people watching, uh, Sonali Sachdev is watching from uh, Mumbai, India. We have Maria Ftimiadis, I think she's watching from either Long Island or France, because um, she does that sometimes. Uh, uh, we have, you know, when my my child's uh, school, my, my uh, fourth child is a 10th grader and it's a hybrid, um, and because very few children elected to go back in, uh, she's actually able to go in now five days a week, but we fill out a screening form. So let's talk a little bit about screening and testing for these children. And uh, what is the what does the American Academy of Pediatrics say is the right degree of screening and testing as kids go back into the classroom? Yeah, no, thank you. And 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 actually before I do that, I want to just circle a little bit, Robin. I was I had that exact same analogy in my head the moment you said it of that we're we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same same boat. And so I think, you know, um that that is really important for us to remember. And I think it's also a really important call to us um to to partner together and to work together and to be innovative and to learn these learn from from what's happened in the past year and really look towards innovative solutions moving forward so that that we could really equitably be supporting all of our all of our all of our kids and families and students um, and you know when it comes to testing we think of testing as one of those layers right um, in in the in the Swiss cheese model um, it's not uh, you know it, it, it we, we've not seen it as something that is a, a you know what it's it's you know mask 
masking, I feel like is a is a we have to do masking. Um, that is that's that's a critical piece of of safe returning to school, and the testing strategy can be a really important piece of that as well. Um, bringing everyone back, the screening, the screening is another really important piece. So having uh, protocols in place so that that as kids come to school every day, as staff come to school every day, you're asking those questions, potentially doing temperature screening if that makes sense. Um, but that that you have a really routinized uh, uh, routine in place to do to do that screening. Um, you know, I, I would add, um, uh, you know, we I hear sometimes people say, well, someone might not know or they might, you know, might send their kids to school anyway. And that's why we've got all those layers in place so that that if one thing slips through, we've got another layer in that Swiss cheese model to help keep us all safe. You know, and I apologize to everyone. My cat just came in and is like hopped up on my lap and is trying really, really hard to get on the screen. You know, early on, um, I want probably early on, like June, July, we were talking about all the testing that's available. And we talked about doing pooled testing, right? Mm -hmm. For uh, whether it's a family or um, a community. And so, you know, pool testing to remind everybody is that you take a sample from a group that's tested together. And if the sample's negative, you don't have to do anything further, right? So that saves on all the testing that we're doing. Um, then, however, if it is positive, then you have to individually test them. And, and pool testing can be saliva tests. It's not always a swab. Um, it's kind of gross because everybody's saliva gets mixed together and they get tested. But that's one easy way to um, decrease the number of PCR tests that we're doing that saves on cost. And it is also something that can be done um, with, with the communities and it's not as invasive as the other testing. What are you guys' thoughts on that? So in, in Massachusetts, they are doing that with school nurses. 900 schools are involved in doing pool testing. It just, it just began not that long ago. They're having really good success. Um, and so I'm really proud of, of my colleagues in Massachusetts. Kathy Riccio is one of the leads and she's, uh, uh, there's been some great reporting about the work that's being done around pool testing in Massachusetts. So it's possible. I mean, I, I have always felt from the beginning, if we knew, you know, who wasn't safe to be in the building, then we could be in the building. And part of this, it always felt like we were playing whack-a-mole or hide and seek with the <laughs> virus, right? Yeah. So, I mean, our testing, unlike in other countries, has was not well um, planned or disseminated. Another uh, lesson learned for, God forbid, when this happens again. Can I ask you in Massachusetts, what's the turnaround time? So all these schools are doing pool testing, which I love. I think it's great. So what's the, when do they know? I think it's rather quick. Um, so is it a rapid test? Like we can get a result in 15, 20 minutes if we no, need No, I think yeah. it, I believe, I don't want to answer without having all the information, but I believe it's a PCR. Um, so a day or two. So you a day or two. two, yeah. It's 160 school districts and 900 schools are participating in the program. It is voluntary, um, but it, it's a way, it's, you know, it's a way to see who's safe to be there. And they've had really good success right now. Um, if the pool's negative, then everyone's presumed negative. And if the pool sample's positive, then um, as Marina said, all the all the 
individuals are retested to find the actual positive case, it's been a relatively uncomplicated for the staff to monitor. And so, I mean, this is a great example of an innovative program to center safety. That's, that's really terrific. So we have talked about teenagers and we've talked about middle schoolers, we've talked about uh, young school-age children. Arthur Halbenstock, who's in California, writes in that he has a 17-month-old who has never met her grandparents. So Lee, what's the answer? What's safe for him? How can they um, meet their nuclear family, their extended nuclear family in a safe manner? So, you know, th this is one of these questions that's so hard to answer, right? Especially, you know, you, this is, you know, I would very much encourage anyone who's thinking about this to talk to their doctor about it, right? Because it, um, some of this depends on um, the current community spread. Um, some of this depends on on medical conditions of, of family members. Some of it depends on immunization um, status of, of family members. Certainly we know a 17 month old doesn't have access to the vaccine yet. So that's, as we said, one thing that we, we wanna, wanna push. But I think that the general statement that I would say is that we're so, you know, if we look at the numbers, as you all were talking earlier, we and, and what we know about the immunizations that are coming our way, you know, we're, we're close to being able to get our arms around this. And so I think some of this is that we probably have to be patient a little while longer, you know, really, really be good about wearing masks in our communities, avoiding indoor gatherings. That's as individuals and as communities, that's one of the most important things we can be doing to bring this 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 to an end um, or bring this, get us to a place where we can all get back to where we can be visiting with our grandparents and flying on airplanes and all of those other things um, uh, without worrying about it. Uh, and so so, so hanging in there and, and continuing to be safe and and really, really taking this to the finish line, I think is so important. You know, um, around masking, right? The, 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 the message has not been clear until now. Now I think the, the CDC has come out with some very clear messaging and some of the discussion is about, you know, like the WHO, the World Health Organization say kids under five don't need to wear masks. Now, when we're looking at, we were in the height of a height of our, our third wave, I want to say, in the US, the CDC came out and talked about doing double masks. Right. Should kids and teachers, when you're back at school, wear double masks? And just as a quick aside, I climbed a flight of stairs, one flight with a mask on. It was a good mask. I was like so out of breath by the time I got up there. And I was like, oh, my patient was like, are you okay? I'm like, uh, it was a flight of stairs. She's like, it's probably the mask. I'm like, well, I was wearing it. They can't imagine in a double mask what would have happened. We also have a TikTok star amongst us. I just want to share. <laughs> so I made my first ever TikTok. Actually, my, sis, my daughter is 16 and is all about how to wear a mask, right? Because I was so frustrated at the bizarro under the nose, you know, under the chin mask wearing that was coming into the office. But, you know, we do, we have questions of, um, is a five-year-old supposed to wear a mask? Is a two-year-old supposed to wear a mask? Lee, maybe you can talk to us about what's the right age to have them start wearing masks and how assiduous do they have to be? And also double masks. And also double masks. 
Absolutely. So, so and AP and our experts really, and and I think this is the, the this is pretty consistent. Really believe that that and and recommend mask wearing for ages two and up, um, with very rare exception. It's shown to be safe and effective. And in fact, we were talking about this a little bit. You know, in many ways, actually, our younger ones are better at this than than adults. They just it becomes normal to them. Um, they're like, that's fine. I wear a mask. That's just sort of a normal thing. I put a mask on. That's you know, as a that they, they they'll take their cues on that from us as adults if if we say okay it's time to go out and time to put on our mask and this is part of what we do to keep each other safe and keep our family safe then 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 it's okay you know i will say um you know, and and for older kids and exercise, I mean, my, my kids exercise pretty vigorously with masks on. And, and one of the things we laugh about, I'm like, well, it's a little bit like training at altitude, right? I guess, you know, the, and the other side of this, actually, you're going to be in much better shape. So, so that's a good thing. When it comes to double masking, you know, I, I think, you know, when you look at the CDC recommendations around that, really what they're getting at is trying to make sure you have a well-fitting mask that's not letting a lot of air, you know, a lot of extra stuff out of the outside. So sometimes double masking is the is the right way to go about that. Um, they give some other recommendations, you know, in terms of tightening the ear loops or really making sure it's up close to your face. And so so my recommendation is whichever strategy is going to make wearing a mask consistently consistent and comfortable is the one you should take. Um, because consistent wearing of a well-fitting mask is one of the most important things we can do to get this pandemic under control. And so whether that's double masking, whether that's tightening your ear loops, whichever strategy they recommend, um, whichever one works the best for you is the one you should use. So we have a follow-up question from Miriam Berkeley about pool testing. And I think her question is, what is the sample size? So how many uh, people spit or nose stuff can you put into a pool uh, to get information? I think what was happening in Massachusetts, it's the pods of, of groups that are staying together in a class. So it's the teacher and the students that are potting together in a, in a group. Um, I'm not sure of the, the vast number, how, how big, but that seems to be what they're doing uh, for the schools in Massachusetts, these 900 schools that are participating. We have time for some takeaways from you guys. So if you could each, Robin, since, since we have you up on screen there, can, if you can give us three takeaways for our, our viewers and our listeners to you know, consider uh, and, and perhaps practice, what would they be? So I do have some takeaways. One is, please, please, when the health department calls, please cooperate. This has been one of the, the pieces of COVID that has not gone well. 70% of, I know in my state of New Jersey, uh, families are not cooperating when the health department calls. They are not calling to get into your personal business. They're calling to let you know that there's been an exposure and there are things that you can do to help the, uh, stem the spread. So please contact the health department and and give them the information. And also when the school nurse has to call and tell you that your child is symptomatic um, and needs to go home for a certain number of days, you know, we're on the same team. We don't wanna be adversaries. We really wanna work together. And so that's really the messaging. Let's be on the same team about this. We all want our children to be safe and to be able to return to school. And there are things we can all do to make that happen. And when your vaccination, when you can get vaccinated, no matter which one it is, go for it. Great. Dr. Beers, Lee. 
Well, first, everything Robin said, I agree. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I think that the additional last few that I would would just really uh, bring to us, you know, first is just a reminder that that children and families are so impacted uh, by this pandemic. And, and because of children's, the stage children are at in their brain development, things that, that happen and the trauma, as Robin said, that happens during this year can have, have really lifelong impacts. And so it's really, it's just so important for us to remember that. And, and prioritize the things that kids and families need uh, so, so that they will come through this and that they will come past the stronger and more resilient. Uh, I think the second piece that goes along with that is recognizing, as Robin said, we're, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. Uh, and so, so as communities, we need to lift up those, those around us whose boat is not as well built. And so, so really thinking about how do, how do we level the playing field? How do we, how do we make sure that all of our families are getting the supports that they need and that all of our kids have the opportunity to grow up in healthy and thriving households. And then the last thing I would say, and I say this to people a lot, is that each one of us has the ability to make a difference. Um, whether it's the individual wearing a mask and doing things that are safe in your community, speaking out to your policymakers, being advocates with your local school district, helping out you know, community members in need, each one of us has the ability to make a difference. And, and this is the time for us to do that as we, we have, we have a lot of power together and we should use it. Thank you. I, I think that is the, you guys have both articulated the golden lining, right? Where we are going to come out of this understanding each other better, understanding society better. Um, I think we're going to be able to be better people coming forward from uh, what has been really a horrendous and horrific uh, year. I want to thank uh, both of you, Dr. Lee Beers, who's the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's a practicing pediatrician at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and Ms. Robin Kogan, who is a nationally certified school nurse, and she blogs at Relentless School Nurse. And as you can see, she is relentless in the care and feeding of of uh, children and families. She's been in tw for 20 years in the Camden, New Jersey School District. We're so happy that both of you could join us today. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. Thank you so much for having us. And if you guys have tuned in and you've uh, perhaps not caught all the whole show, you can uh, see it again on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. It will also be on WBAI Monday from 2 to 3 p.m. Want to thank our uh, guests as well. We want to thank our producers um, and they without them the show wouldn't be as great as it is. And next week we're going to celebrate a day early International Women's Day. So stay tuned for that. It'll be a special ch show which will be women in leadership achieving an equal future in a COVID nineteen world. Thank you guys so much. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Get a shot. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, 
proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.